Street. I went to Wall Street to get seriously rich, but I didn't get rich. Hollywood Boulevard. I went to Hollywood to be a movie mogul. I didn't become a movie mogul. Washington, D.C. The president and Mrs. Ford have invited us down to Palm Springs. He's been I there. I the entertainment business. Done and that. Being hired by a company called Carol Co. Pictures. And that. the night before Ronald Reagan was inaugurated. And just about everything else you can imagine. I thought of myself as somebody who was a double agent. He knew a lot of famous My people. experience with Orson Welles. How can you possibly hang out with that low-life Frank Sinatra. And now he's talking. As a result of that, I was invited to some fancy dinner. This is the podcast, Who the F*** is Roger Smith? But my real goal was to have an interesting life surrounded by interesting people, and at that, I succeeded beyond my expectations. In this episode, a deep dive into his favorite boss, practical joker Steve Ross, an explanation about anti-Semitism in the business world, how way before smart TVs, big corporations were spying on us, and the A-list actor-director who thanks Steve at the Oscars. But let's start in Ohio with something called Cube Television. Cube was the first two-way television. (laughs) It allowed, it was the first time you could sit in your home and send a signal back to the, the head office system. And you would do this to buy things, to select programs. This is way before QVC or HSN. It was yes, they were, it was they literally were, like if a commercial for the Gap came on and you wanted that pair of jeans, this system was designed to let you actually get a message somehow to Gap yes, before yes. the internet, before any of this, that you wanted to buy that pair of jeans. And Steve did have a tendency to be overly exuberant about new technology, he would fall in love with it, and he didn't have to understand how it worked, he just knew it, it worked, it would. and if it doesn't work, by the way, we'll make it work. Uh-huh. And in fact, I went, and my guys, as head of the foundation, I met with a wonderful man named Nick Negroponte, who ran MIT's Media Lab, and ended up uh, giving them a $250,000 grant, because they were working on the very technology that would take Cube way into the next generation. Wow. And so... Uh, Cube didn't work though, right? In Ohio, it was it was a box on top of a box and people just said, I don't want all that no, it, in my it, house. It, it didn't become a major new method for to be expanded to other systems, but we learned certain things from it. For instance, we would survey people as to what kind of programming they liked watching. And you will be amazed to learn that Documentaries came out very high. Cultural offerings came out very high when you surveyed people. What they should have known and probably at some level did is we didn't have to ask them. We knew exactly what they were doing. We had the, we had the records there. Right. Porno was 40% of it, but nobody ever mentioned that when being interviewed. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. But I, I don't want to focus too much on Steve's cleverness because that was not what made him unique. What made him unique was a heart big as the outdoors who just cared about people and he wanted he sort of like you know he wanted them to be happy and if they were happy then he'd end up being happy kind of thing he was also gutsy though and one of the in his i think it was his obit or one of the books that was written about him uh he was quoted as saying if you're not a risk taker you should get the hell out of the business 
So he was a guy that was willing to say, I think I'm right on this and put his money and his people behind it. Absolutely. And and I think partly because he saw the risk, but he also saw that if it didn't turn out as well as he hoped, he would also know how to turn it around and get out of it and make it turn, turn you know. Uh, Pivot before pivoting lemons, was a big lemons word. Lemons into lemonade kind <laughs> of thing. And he also used perks, perquisites, to endear his executives to him. We had at one point had a fleet of five private jets, one of which was essentially Ahmed Erdogan's whenever he wanted it. He, and people thought it was his jet. It was the company's jet, of course. But By the way, normally after a, a merger like Time and Warner, uh, a lot of that stuff comes under scrutiny and gets... First of all, lots of people get fired. Were a lot of people fired after I'll the tell Time you, Warner I'll tell merger? You exactly. I was no longer at the company after the merger, but I got called by the press to ask, how do you think the two different cultures, the button-down Greenwich, Connecticut, Time Inc. people and the freewheeling Hollywood, Brooklyn kind of people at Warner will merge? And I said, one company sincerely and, and seriously overpays its executives and gives them massive perks. And the other companies kind of cheap, frankly. Who do you think's going to win? <laughs> I said, the time executives said, oh, we, we kind of like this. I remember meeting with one of them who actually wrote a book about uh, to call Till the End of Time, about the merger in which he was totally dismissive of the Warner people, et cetera. I'll think of his name in a minute. Um, and um, uh, Clerman, Dick Cler Richard Clerman. Okay. And after the book came out, I mean, it was there was a code word he used, Brooklyn. There were all these Brooklyn people. Now, well, not everybody was from Brooklyn. I was, I was certainly wasn't. But I finally, afterwards, I said, Dick, I, I read the book, as you might imagine, where you quote me. I'm perfectly fine. I, you quoted me accurately, but you are clearly, frankly, anti-Semitic. You make endless references to Brooklyn and technically, you know, read Jewish. And it comes through. He says, well, Roger, I'll have you know that some of my best relatives are Jewish. He said, you may not have known that. I said, of course I knew that. You don't think I understand how Jewish anti-Semitism works? <laughs> It had this idea of, and he, he was somebody who, at that, remember, if you, if you joined Time in the, in the 60s, that was the ultimate place for an executive to be. It was powerful, it was clean, it was, and, and, and you had you know, sort of a, a very good position, your fingers on the pulse of the culture. Well, they ran Time, they ran People, they had Sports Illustrated. Right, which, it was an extremely profitable company. Back in the days when print was was king, and that, that of course has all changed now. I think I recently saw the figures on the total expenditures on print advertising, excluding internet, and it's basically from the moment the internet became a major media market, year two thousand, it's down seventy percent. Seventy. Seventy. I was going to yeah. guess higher than that yeah. actually and of course what has happened as the total media expenditures on internet advertising are huge they have made up for more than a hundred percent of the print except for one thing 
It goes to companies called Google and Facebook. It doesn't go to Time or uh, New, Newhouse Publications. It, the, the old people have been totally displaced by these uh, technologically driven companies. Did Steve foresee anything like the internet? Did he? Not, not because I left in the mid eighties, it was too right, early. Right, and we're that. a long yeah. way from yeah. the World yeah. Wide yeah. Web, yeah. as yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, not Al Gore calls early it. But early nineties, it was there. Yeah. yeah. But he, you know, he would hear about new technologies and fall in love with some of them. More often right than wrong. We are often. How responsible was he for the invention of two very different audience uh, channels, MTV and Nickelodeon? Uh, very interesting. MTV, you will hear people tell you, and Nickelodeon was the brainchild of a guy named Bob Pittman. It was not. Bob Pittman was the head of marketing for it, and he did... I want my MTV, or it's not television, it's HBO. Uh -huh. He did a brilliant job Clever of marketing, marketing guy. but he didn't invent it. Uh, he's now running iHeartRadio, oh, yeah. which is a very big company, but, but uh, it has a debt load that it may not ever be able to escape from. Well, now we shouldn't say that because I think we're heard on iHeartRadio. Okay, well, they're doing brilliantly, I hear. Actually, I had dinner uh, a month ago with his mother-in-law, Oh. The lovely elderly woman who lived in our building, <laughs> but anyway, getting back to Be really Steve, nice to her. Yeah, right. <laughs> getting back to Steve's personal qualities, um, I'll give you a perfect example. The greatest calamity that the company faced while I was there was this thing called Westchester Premier Theater, because Steve's number two, a lovely man and basically quite ethical man named Jay Emmett, had become involved in making an investment in it. It was partly to please Frank Sinatra, but it turned out that it was mob controlled, which I believe to this day we had no idea that it was, but that's... But you said earlier, your first inkling of that was they had a deal with Sinatra to show up a couple times a year. Yes, but I, but I didn't automatically assume that that meant... Right, that, that could just be good management. That's what you want to do if you're running a music theater. Right. And Steve had a very uh, interesting effect on, on stars and favorite people in that it was very clear what he potentially wanted from them. You know, he wanted from Barbara Streisand uh, uh, or Clint Eastwood. Uh, it was less clear what did they need him for. And the fact is that he was so effectively charming and some little perfectly chosen gift would show up after they had done, done a benefit performance, something like that. Well, Eastwood adored him so much that after his death in 1992, Clint Eastwood wins Best Picture yeah. for Unforgiven. Yeah, right. And at the Oscars that year, he thanks Steve. Well, and I'll tell you probably what I think is the single greatest reason that creative talent liked him, loved him. He never interfered. He did not think no that notes. he didn't no. think because I own a movie company, I know something about making movies. He said, don't ever listen to me. I don't know what I'm talking about, about creative decisions. And the famous story, I may have told this before, is about a movie called An Affair to Remember. This was Steve's favorite movie. Deborah Carr. Deborah Carr, Cary Grant, Cary Grant, made in the 50s. What only serious movie buffs like me know is it was in fact a remake 
of a Leo McCary movie from the late 30s called Love Affair, which had been made with uh, Irene Dunn and Charles Boyer, I believe. And then would be remade again by Warren Beatty. Well, we're getting to that. You're oh, getting okay, ahead of the sorry. story. Okay. So every budget meeting from the first time I got there in 74 till I left in 85, um, Steve would say to the Warner people, look, you know I never get involved in creative decision making. I trust you guys implicitly, but please tell me why my all-time favorite movie, Affair to Remember, can't be remade in this generation. You're telling me that it doesn't work, people wouldn't wait six months, they'd go, they'd go run off together and not worry about leaving a disappointed right. In the movie, for yeah. anyone that hasn't seen it, this right. couple meets. Meets and, and they, they say, well- Make a plan to remeet in like six, six months. months. Yes. And the Cary Grant character has no idea why she doesn't show up at their rendezvous. But she, of course, has been hit by a car while crossing 34th Street on her way to the top of the Empire State Building. Yeah. I mean, it is as schmaltzy <laughs> as it could possibly be. But Steve wanted to remake it. And and kind of as a joke, every year would bring it up. Hey, what, what's going on with my Kind my of, version? no, kidding on the square, I think it would be called. He was very, he really, he said, convince me again. Tell me nothing's changed, that it just wouldn't work for today's audience. Steve, trust us, it wouldn't work. Any screenwriter we've asked to tackle it would say it's impossible to, unless you change it totally. So Steve dies. Steve has two funerals. One is Phil's Carnegie Hall in New York, a memorial service, I should call it, not a funeral. And then there's a second one, which... I was living in LA at that time. That's now 1992. Pardon me. Would have filled Carnegie Hall or did fill Carnegie? Did at Carnegie Hall? Was at Carnegie okay. Hall and filled Carnegie Hall. Okay. In fact, someone at the New York Times told me that they had never had as many, you know those death notices that people can pay to put in. They're different from from mm -hmm. obits, and you can put them anywhere from six paragraphs if you're the person's family to two or three lines: "We miss you and love you," etc. They had 3,000 people pay to put money in to say they love, how much wow. they love Steve Ross. And that was a record? Oh, it, those... nothing ever came close. Wow. I mean, I don't know what will happen if the Pope dies, but... Uh. <laughs> and I'll give you examples. I mean, we're in London on a very important trip to meet with top banks in London, and we're giving a dinner at Annabelle's, which is the yeah. fanciest uh, yeah. disco, night, but disco also nightclub, but had a beautiful private dining room that seated about 16 people. And I give Steve the guest list and then so he says, wait a minute, where's Tony gonna sit? I just, I'm giving the, the, the placement of the table. He said, Tony was his Brooklyn-born Dees Demondos bodyguard who when he came to England was told he couldn't bring his gun in so he was there, but it wasn't much he could do without the gun. I said, well, Steve, Tony's going to be sitting in the car. You're not going to have him sitting with the, with the people from uh, Warburg and company, are you? Well, so I'm not going to have him sitting in the car. You, you would do that, Roger? You're a terrible person. I said, well, I didn't think of it that way exactly. I said, of course, he sat there, and I don't know who was on the, I, I had to put the least important person on the other side. Not of Lady Di. I mean, no, there's no, 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 no. There was right, no royalty right, there, right, but it was right. an important company meeting. With the top investment managers in the UK. But he was endlessly looking out 
for his people. On another trip to London, I had brought my newly hired replacement as the head of investor relations, and the Ritz Hotel in London had given him a really, really tiny rooms kind of used if you're traveling with your valet, you know, kind of thing. And Steve discovers this. He said, Roger, you let that happen? I said, well, I didn't think I had to intervene with the hotel and change it. Said, Was your room nicer? Oh, you bet. <laughs> and so he said, immediately change it. You, your job is to look out for your people the way I look out for you. Fair enough. Fair enough. I once had a conversation with a New York Post columnist, reporter, who some people will remember named Steve Dunlavey. Sure, Steve. Steve Dunlavey was your tough-talking Irish, Australian, whatever he was. But he was well, he was Australian, but he was Australian, uh, but a Rupert Murdoch guy. And he, I was more a, often found at Langan's, a bar across the street from the New York Post, than the newsroom of the New York Post. That, I yes. think he wrote more at Langan's than he did. Well, that he was a regular elbow bender was yeah. was quite apparent. Yeah. And we're at, I'm at a dinner at my actually my lawyer at the time, Ron Conicky, a very important uh, uh, media industry lawyer, and Steve Dunlavey's there, and I'm talking about how much I admire Steve Ross. And he says, Roger. Well, of course you admire him. He took the shareholders' money, not his, and he lavishly rewarded you. I said, well, Steve, you will forgive me for thinking I earned it. But <laughs> yes, he was generous. There's no question about it. One year, I'd had a terrible year, and I was sure my bonus was going to go down. And no, it didn't. He didn't want to discourage people. Well, and also, as you said, he wanted to tell people, this year you really have to earn your bonus, as yeah. opposed to, yeah, of course I'm going to get it. And uh, that's how he, he I, I think there was encouraged people. Yes, but I think it was more about understanding how not to make people feel less than loved. That was really about it was about being feeling loved. And so the particular thing I was I was thinking about um, when going back to the famous Westchester Premier Theater, there's a man who appears on television regularly these days named Nick Ackerman. And Nick Ackerman was the district attorney for Westchester County at the time, but he's frequently called on to opine on Donald Trump's latest indictments. And he's very shrewd, but he was absolutely convinced that it wasn't J.M. at the number two guy, it was Steve Ross, and he was going to get him. And he did his damnedest to do so. And uh, Did you guys just sell the theater? Didn't you just divest? Didn't yeah, you just... no, but he was proving that we had been bribed to invest in it, and there must have been, why would we do this? Because we, right. the, the amount of money supposedly was $75,000. Crazy. Which is not, in the corporate scope of things, a huge amount of money. However, in one thing you never ever see in a large public company, cash. You never see cash. Uh -huh. And I know, and I don't know this for a fact, and I can't point to specific examples, there are certain things you need cash for. Political donations you don't want known about. Uh, things like that. Uh -huh. this, uh, and so the idea was that we took the 75,000 cash, put it away, and then used it for various nefarious purposes. Right. Well, I will not tell you that I am ready here to swear that Steve Ross was too honest to do that. Right. I am ready to swear he was too smart.
<laughs> he knew that the, the risk there was not hardly worth $75,000. So what- No uh, matter who you found you're in business with right, one morning. You wake yeah, up right. and there's no horse head in your bed. bed but, yes, yes. yes. But, but the man who'd done the deal, which was considered suspicious at best and, and outright criminal at worst, was Jay Emmett, who was one of my closest friends and a lovely, lovely, and the funniest man I've ever known, beyond beyond witty. And Jay was brought down by this and it ended up- Would it be accurate to call him a scapegoat? Yes, it would be accurate to call him a scapegoat. And at first, I believed the protestations that they had done nothing wrong, and this was all made up by the prosecution. No, there was $75,000 that had passed hands. Did Jay take it for himself? No, he's too smart for that. Steve probably said, look, make the deal and uh, we'll put it in the safe and when we need a little extra cash, we have a little fund for this. Uh -huh. I, I believe that Jay would never have done anything to harm his knowing Steve, no, right. knowingly. So I think it was this was his idea as a way to create this, this cash fund. But it ended up being blown in way, way out of proportion to what it was. It, 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 but I ended up being able to give the eulogy at J. Emmett's funeral, which took place. J. Emmett was a mad baseball fan and became a baseball executive, and he owned a piece of the Boston Red Sox. So the, his funeral was his memorial service, not funeral. In Fenway Park? Fenway Park. No kidding. And I got to address the crowd. Now, the crowd here was not 38,000 people. Right. The crowd but was it, 200 people for the, for the memorial uh, service. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. I'm standing there looking out at the, at the, the green monster in left field. <laughs> <laughs> and, and as the long, way he would I'm, have I'm a Boston Red Sox fan because I grew up hating the Yankees. As a child, we lived in Cleveland, and they were the enemy. And ever since then, I, anyone who's against the, you know, that, that old line, of, what's your favorite team who's ever playing the Yankees? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, Well, you mentioned the concerns of being politically involved with the mob. Was Steve political? Didn't he work with Jimmy Carter? Oh, Steve, like many senior corporate executives, got, I think the right word is, seduced by the idea of having political power by giving money to candidates, all totally- Never wanted to go into politics himself no, at any no, point. No, no, okay. No. He doesn't want any boss. He doesn't certainly want 300 million bosses. Uh, but he also saw that you could win favor by contributing to campaigns openly and above board, not, not illegally. And he was always a Democrat. There was never any question about that. And so he met Jimmy Carter and he was taken with him when he was considered just a ridiculous, hopeless- Long shot long peanut shot, farmer. Long shot peanut farmer. And I went to a breakfast that Steve gave for him and I was frankly unimpressed. Really? I yeah, I didn't think he was gonna make it, but Steve did and uh, stuck stuck with him. And Another he, time when Steve was ahead of his time or saw something time. that and no one else did. Indeed, when Carter was elected in 76, and I think it was 78 or so, we're on a trip to Europe and we're meeting with the head of one of the big Swiss banks. And they know that Steve was close to Jimmy Carter when all of industry was Republican. He was one of the rare Democrats. And they started- Well, Gerald Ford is who he defeats, right? Yeah, in 76. 76. Yeah. And um, in a very close election, uh, 
Well, we've talked about yeah, uh, yeah, right. Jerry Ford right, and Palm right. Springs and right. you being down there and giving him advice. But we're now in this Apparently meeting. Apparently that didn't work. No, right. <laughs> uh, well, it's very interesting. I recently said to somebody, I think Joe Biden were really smart. He would not say this until he's, once Trump was convicted, he'd pardon him. Ford's point, America doesn't want to see a former president in a prison. And I think that still applies to Donald yeah. Trump. And I know you're no fan of Donald Trump, but no to say fan. that he doesn't deserve to go to prison I, the country doesn't, is really more the for the country, country than for the deserve, man. Exactly. Yeah. They had to have that happen. But Was, Steve, did Steve, Carter do anything for Time or Warner or no, anything no, after the no. fact? In and fact, were you guys, fact, I know you were extremely philanthropic. Were, were you guys involved with Habitat for Humanity and any of the stuff that, that Jimmy became not, involved not with? Not that, that, to my knowledge, but I will tell you what I did do was it's 1980 and now Jimmy Carter is booted out of office in a landslide by Ronald Reagan. Right. And we had a very, very smart guy who was our man in Washington, our, our head lobbyist named Jay Berman. He later became head of the Recording Institute of America, very shrewd guy. And I met with him in Washington and I said, look, we are seen by the Reagan administration as virtually the only company in America in the Fortune 50 who is pro-Democrat. Everyone else is pro-Republican and that has to be bad for our business interests. We have got to think out a way to let them know at a reasonably moderate cost that we're not the enemy. And so we ended up, on my suggestion, hiring Robert Gray, who had a PR firm that was exclusively for lobbying firm, not PR. Lobbying that was he firm. was in DC, right? DC for that uh -huh. exclusively had Republican right. clients, and I said by doing this, I said you know we'll pay him twenty five thousand dollars a month, and we'll do it for a year or two, and 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 signal that we have our business hands interests, across the aisle, and our business interests exceed our political interests. And did that work? It, it worked up until it's now 1982, and our music company wants to merge with Polygram. And the Reagan administration never pursued an antitrust action ever. They believed in hands off, except one. When a Jewish American company wanted to merge with a foreign company, Polygram, which was Dutch and British, they said, okay, we, we can oppose this one without hurting any of our friends, <laughs> and they stopped it. Oh, so, sorry. Now, as it happened, because the music industry, seven or eight years later, thanks to something called Napster and other things like right. that, totally went into a collapse, and we would have spent $8 billion badly. For, yeah, badly. So, yeah, yeah, so yeah. They, they prevented us from shooting ourselves in the foot. <laughs> so life, life has these funny things. Did but, Steve Ross ever go to the White House? Oh, yes. Yeah. During the Carter during years, the Carter during, the, yes, during yeah. the Reagan yeah. years, right. too? During the Reagan years, we went the same, at, together at the same time. I've talked about it to, to he didn't know, he didn't go when we presented the uh, uh, Robert Redford film. That was me and uh, the general counsel. That was at the Kennedy Center. Yeah. Yeah. But there was a reception at the White House first. That's when my that picture of me shaking hands with the president uh, comes from ah. that. But... Steve, you know, had a, his political instincts were just the opposite of Ronald Reagan's. I mean, Steve was an old fashioned FDR liberal, a new, uh -huh. a new deal Democrat. But he understood also that business is business. He, don't, he was not gonna impose his views on company if it hurts the company. 
Did any politician ever really disappoint him? Or did you guys ever oh, ask I, for something? I, 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 think he, I think he had to be disappointed by Carter's loss. Uh, lo not just his loss. I think his loss was not deserved, but it wasn't undeserved. Let's put it that way. They had screwed up enough so that the criticisms of him stuck. And somebody once said that Jimmy Carter is America's greatest ex-president. <laughs> He's been had a wonderful 50-year run since he got out of 40-year run, sorry, since he got out of the White House yeah. of humanitarian work. So that's fine. But I wanted to give you one example of how Steve's business mind works. Did you know there was a company called Warner Lauren, which was a joint venture between Ralph Lauren and Warner? And Someone at the company, I remember David Horowitz, said, oh, look, I've gotten to know Ralph Warren, Lauren, and he's in cosmetics, et cetera, but he's not in the most lucrative part of the business, which is perfume. And he wants to go into it, and it will probably take about $20, $30 million to launch a perfume company. He said, great, let's do it. I like that. I said, uh, and he said, we're going to have two lines. We'll have a men's fragrance line, which became Polo, if you remember those green bottles. Yeah. And there was a women's line called Lauren, which was square-shaped red bottles. Yeah. And so he said, well, we need management. He said, he says, and I'm in this meeting, and tell me, who's the number one person in the women's fragrance business? Oh, far and away, Bob Ruttenberg, he runs Charlie, for with your pal Bobby Short, who oh, was yeah, in those commercials, in commercials for Charlie. Yes, yes right. <laughs> Charlie, and but he runs he runs it for Revlon. Yeah. And then they said, well, okay. Steve says, well, so who's the biggest guy, biggest piece of management talent in the men's business? They said, oh, that's George Friedman. He runs the uh, Old Spice. No, no, nothing no, no, that no, no. old. It, it was, Paco uh, Rabanne or one no, of no, the I, I Aramis. Know. One of those Aramis. Thank you. Was it Aramis? Aramis for Estee Lauder. Uh -huh. So Steve says, so hire them. <laughs> One of the executives, not me, thank you, uh, patiently says, Steve, they are at the top job, at the top company in the field, Revlon and women, uh, Estee Lauder, men, you're never going to get them away. Steve says, tell me something. What percentage of Estee Lauder do they own? What percentage of Revlon? You're going to go to them and say, we're going to set aside 20% of the company for you. For share. each of them? Or 20% of the men's? Ten, okay. It was actually 15 and 5 because uh -huh. George Friedman was the more important person. Okay. And so we're going to set aside that and you'll be an owner. You won't be an employee. And we will put up what turned out to be a total of $30 million to build the company. And within four, three years, it was sold to uh, L'Oreal in, in France for $130 million. Wow, and, and they, that was cheap, right? That, yeah, well, over, over, if, over you, if you bought it then versus today? You know, I think any asset you bought 40 years ago, the price looks low today unless it was a failure. Right, but, and uh, 30 to one whatever is, right. is yeah. pretty quick pretty, in three pretty, years. Pretty, pretty, so you pretty, successfully pretty, hired those two guys. Those two guys, and they've never worked a day since. <laughs> um, just, we can't say that about you and I as we do this podcast, but we did mention earlier on that uh, 
when you came aboard, the stock was six. And with you and Steve Ross, when you left, or we should say when he left, what was it? I'll tell you, when when the deal went through with time, uh, at first the stock was in the, the tank, but it, in, within a few years, I would say by 90, well, no, I'll tell you when. In 2000, when they merged with uh, AOL, AOL yeah. where it stock temporarily went up before it collapsed. If you had bought, that's our, the stock that was six had, thanks to multiple splits, was actually one share the one dollar and it went it gone from one dollar to a hundred dollars and i know this because i bought a hundred shares for my mother and her her stock account and she ended up having 600 shares did okay she did okay she didn't live enough to thank me but that's okay (laughs) Uh, well we can thank you okay well i appreciate that um what i haven't mentioned about steve roth's acumen about life that I think involves the single greatest mistake he ever made. And this is something that my lawyer may force me to take out, but it was marrying Courtney Sale, who- Yes, we've spoken at this. Right, who, is not your most favorite of his three wives. Well, Steve knew more about medicine than any layman I ever knew. He mentioned a disease. Oh, I know the guy at Mount Sinai. I know the guy at Sloan Kettering. He does everything he always would send you to him. He's, I. I had a, a, a pain in my in my back. I go I go to uh, uh, Nicholas uh, Jim Jim Nicholas, who had created the Sports Medicine Institute for Lenox Hill, right. and indeed was the team physician physician for the Jets. And when I get there, I said, Doctor Nicholas, you are about to meet the least physically fit person you've ever met. <laughs> uh, and his son Stephen Nicholas is my doctor to this day. Wow. Uh, so Steve was on top of everything medis- medical. Steve died of prostate cancer. Now, prostate cancer, if caught anywhere other than six weeks before you die, is something going to be dealt with. Courtney was into herbal medicine, Asian bullshit, and she had him on a yacht going around the, the world in, on a boat, or around, at least around the east coast of America, and he died. I'm not going to even remotely suggest that that was something she wanted to see happen. I do know that she ended up getting $900 million as a result of his death, which, by the way... All opinions he, on this podcast are Mr. Smith's. No, nobody else's. <laughs> when Steve died, he had a net worth on paper at that time of $200 million. She was left $70 million and the rest were... He had two children from a former marriage. He had generous bequests that he was giving to people. I mean, one guy who worked for him for years named Guy Salvatore, who was supposed to get $5 million. Well, Courtney stopped that. Uh-huh. So that's the kind of person Any she charitable is. donations that she squashed or any? Well, I'll tell you about that. Because you and he did so much philanthropically. Probably, yes. And those who criticize him will say he was philanthropic with the shareholders' money, not his own. That's not true. He was generous with his own money, though obviously on a different scale. But Steve, for the years that I worked for him, up until he met and married Courtney, which was a total of eight years, you got the most wonderful Christmas presents. Cashmere blankets, uh, luggage. I mean, they were really expensive stuff. 
Now he's married to Courtney, and all of a sudden I get an envelope. And it says, a generous donation has been made in your name to the poor children of East Hampton. I write back. Both of them. I said, where did they find them? <laughs> I mean, can you we imagine? both racing to the same punchline yes, in right. a sense. That's funny. Uh. It, I, mean, I mean, someone says, are you sure that's what it said? I said, I'm not clever enough to make that up. The poor children of East Hampton. Meanwhile, if you were sitting with us right now, what would he, and we wanted to raise a drink to him or to you or to me, what was his drink and what would he say in a, in a toast? Uh, he, liked, he liked very good red wine. He had a wonderful cellar. Uh, I introduced him to a woman named Judy something who was a wine expert. And that cellar has ended up being the cellar of Nick and Tony's restaurant in East oh. Hampton, oh. where they have incredible bottles that were put away in the 80s. And um, by this woman, but not any of Steve's wine. No, they didn't the, the buy woman, his kit when he passed. No, no, when he passed it, his daughter Tony inherited it. Oh, okay. And she used it as to form a cellar for a thing with God. And indeed, if you have a very, very serious red wine at Nick and Tony's, you'll pay a reasonable price, but it won't be anything like what it might go for in the open market. I because mean, they put it down at a certain price oh. and they mark it up. Restaurants generally charge three times what right. they paid. So if they bought a wine for $200 in 1982, they have charged $600 for it. But that wine on, at auction today might go for 4,000. Right. They don't mark it up. and. Uh, on two occasions, I've had dinner there where I ordered some modest wine and all of a sudden a, a 1982 uh, Chateau Margaux arrives and the gift of Mark and Tony Ross, which uh, was very nice. Yeah. I, I've said before, I, I am not bought and paid for, but a really good bottle of wine goes a long way. <laughs> uh, uh, that's a good ending spot. I think we got to Well, everybody. I just wanted to end on one thing. That, oh, well, yeah, okay. Which is, I mean, we didn't uh, get to Quincy Jones. Oh. Can I do it Should quickly? we do that? Okay. Yeah, you know, really. Quincy Jones was somebody who Steve's wife, Courtney, loved, romanced, and ended up spending six million of Warner's money on making a documentary about Quincy. I forget the name. About Back it. on the Block. <laughs> is that what it's called? Well, there was a documentary I, and an album called Back on the Block no, in the that's, early that's 90s. That's not the name that rings a bell. So... When I would left Warner, I was out in, in Los Angeles. Steve arranges for me to have lunch with Quincy Jones uh, because uh, he said, you know, you're looking for a job. He can, be, he can be very helpful. So we're there, and I said, Mr. Jones, you won't remember this, but we met in 1965. He said, really? I said, you were living, if memory serves me, on East 82nd. He said, oh, yeah, I sublet a place there. I said, well, I had a summer job uh, selling Encyclopedia Britannica door to door in New York. If you think there's a terrible job, I promise you there's none worse than that. No, slam, doors get slammed right, in your face, right. et cetera. But uh, you were somebody who was my first big sale. I sold you and you bought the white Morocco leather super duper version, I think it was like $600. And I will tell you, I come back and now I'm looking forward to my $200 commission. And I'm told that the uh, sale did not go through. I said, what? The credit department rejected it. 
I said, the credit department rejected. Quincy Jones had just then done the music for A Walk on the Wild Side. He was yeah. a major yeah. film composer. Right. I said, there is no way on earth that, that he can't pass. I he's want. a year away from In the Heat of the Night, but, it, but right. he's, yeah. he's right. in demand. He's, he's in demand. He was Sinatra's guy for yeah. a while. He arranged right. yeah. a lot of that so, stuff. Right. Well, I find out that the Encyclopedia Britannica's New York office had a rating system of which they would rate people for creditworthiness, A and B. And B stood for black. Wow. So I'm ready to quit this job. I did it one month and I said, I'm not doing this anymore. I'll, I'd rather wash dishes. I go to the head of the office who I remember was a nasty man who was in a wheelchair, but that did not make me feel at all friendly <laughs> toward him. And I said, is it really true that B stands for black? I said, well, not entirely, if we think someone's a bad credit rating, but yet, Every black was, was a B. I said, well, you'd be interested to know that I have a friend at the New York Times, and he'd be really interested in the story about what Encyclopedia Britannica, how they handle their credit ratings, unless you give me my severance pay that you were holding up. Of, this was $600, and it uh -huh. mattered to me. It, it worked, yeah. And you told the story to Quincy. So now I tell the story to Quincy, and he is, wildly amused by the idea that he hadn't, he said, uh, I said, well, you, I said, but I, he said, I got that encyclopedia. I said, yeah, I told him if they didn't sell it to you immediately uh, and give me my commission, I was going to the New York Times. I had a, a friend who had a summer job there, but I could have, I was, I was willing to, uh, to threaten him with that. So we're now sitting at a fancy restaurant in Beverly Hills. That was your... And then, and then he later civil married, rights movement right, moment. Yes, right. Well, he then later married Peggy Lipton, That's right. who was a client of my sister's. Uh -huh. So that uh, we had a further connection there. But uh, if if I have failed to communicate Steve's largeness of spirit, I I feel bad because that's what I'm trying to get across. There was just a, an inherent generosity that was it was. I'll tell you a funny story. We're in Italy. And we're going to a famous pottery place called the Ceramica Solimene in the little town called Vietri. And Steve's buying service for 16. Well, the, a dish was $2 each. A cup was a dollar. I mean, it was nothing for him. But I've now ordered enough service for 16. And I see the bill, and I didn't realize that shipping and insurance was almost as much again as the original thing. Sure. So I say, oh no, make it service for eight. I don't, I'm not gonna ever have 16 people anyway. And guess what? Turns out that Steve paid for everybody, myself included. And I said, damn it, I cut myself out of service for 16. <laughs> He's laughing somewhere. Well, it's funny. It's, it reminds me of a famous joke about the, the chorus girl who on her birthday got 26 long stem roses, each of which had a $100 bill pinned to the stem from her, from her stage door Johnny, rich man boyfriend. And she looked at it and said, damn it, I cheated myself out of $800. <laughs> Steve Ross, as I said, liked to do pranks, practical jokes. So the one I mentioned was how he quizzed me about what was in, in The Exorcist knowing right. I hadn't seen it. The worst, the worst was this. I'm in. Well, wait a minute. So you'll finish that, and I'll go. Was that the only time he pranked you? No. The worst was in. 
1982, something like that. I'm in London. I'm staying at the Dorchester, and I come in to find a message after the night on the town. It's midnight, and I have to leave at 7 the next morning to take the Concord back to New York. And It's tough to be Roger Smith. At certain moments, yes. Um, and I get a message saying, Mr. Ross's office called, ignore previous telex, we'll manage somehow. <laughs> well, I roused the night manager up. I said, what? I never got a previous telex. What was there? And they're searching. They swear there's no such thing. There wasn't any. It was his idea of a joke. And it meant that when I finally got to bed, I got four hours of sleep before I had to take the plane. So I said, I said, Steve, you really have the time in your schedule to play practical jokes on me? I, I don't know whether to be complimented or, or, or think you're, you've lost your mind. <laughs> but it was, you were complimented by it. He, he, did, he took the effort to, whether he was putting a practical joke on you, I mean, he did card tricks. Now, I knew somebody- Was he good? Oh, absolute fantastic card tricks. Now, he didn't want anyone to know this because Many people thought his management of the company involved sleight of hand. <laughs> so he didn't, he didn't want people to draw too much, but he learned it as a kid and he loved, he did, that, was, that was the only magic he did. And when um, uh, I was being interviewed at great length by Connie Brook, who wrote the one semi-definitive, not really, biography of Steve, she called and she interviewed me for seven or eight hours she quoted me in several places where all of them accurately, but I said, I said, tell me the title you're giving it. She called, it's called Master of the Game. Oh boy. I said, well, first of all, my question is what game? It's sort of vague, I don't think. And second, um, uh, it's implying that it was a game. It wasn't, no, it wasn't a game when you take three funeral homes on the Upper West Side and end up selling them for $13 billion. Real, real billions, <laughs> uh, not Donald Trump billions. And, and so I said, why don't you, Steve had a motto framed behind his desk. Here's your title. More is not an illusion, the Steve Ross story. She, she didn't like it, but I thought it was a lot better, both for Steve and for the book, for the, I think the sales would have been better. If none of his stories were about you, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Who the Book is Roger Smith is recorded in an undisclosed bunker somewhere on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. All opinions are Mr. Smith's own, but everything he says happened because he was there. Bill Bergoli is our producer and editor. I'm Bill McCuddy. Introducing the Deep Leadership Podcast. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former submarine officer who spent 22 years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Leadership matters. Deep Leadership is real-world, actionable leadership advice from John and his expert guests. Become a leader worth following. Subscribe today. Electric Acid. Hi, I'm Lessa Cadet, host of her Extraordinary Life by Design podcast, where we celebrate women who are shaping their lives 
one extraordinary day at a time. I speak with women from all over the world about what they do and how they are passionately pursuing their dreams and creating meaningful impacts on their communities. So come join us and learn about all there is to learn about these extraordinary women. Electric Acid.